happy Monday and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. We changed up the lineup a little bit this week. We'll still see Bacha later on, but for now, Brianna Joy Gray is here. Hello, Brianna. It's wonderful to be with you on a Monday, Robbie. So, so great to see you as well. Uh, what are we talking about today? I believe our president was in Canada, and so was I. I actually uh, similarly took a trip to Toronto uh, over the weekend to speak uh, participating in a debate about uh, the regulation of social media, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I guess I inspired President Biden to <laughs> visit our neighbors to the north as well. Well, I look forward to getting your uh, kind of local man's <laughs> on the ground take on this next story, Ravi. President Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau presented a united front against authoritarian regimes, they said on Friday. Biden visited the Canadian capital just days after a China-Russia summit in Moscow. The two leaders stood side by side as they announced agreements on things such as semiconductors and migration. They also restated that their inseparable nations will remain committed to defending Ukraine. Hmm. So, I mean, this has gotten some pushback. The framing of them being kind of anti-authoritarian has gotten some pushback because of actions that each of these leaders has taken, not just, uh, you know, backing uncritically and without any kind of financial limitations, the war in Ukraine, but also some of the uh, actions that Trudeau took against the Canadian uh, trucker right. protests last year, freezing bank accounts and the like. I think this also is being contextualized in the shadow of the TikTok hearings, where in the United States of America, there are many legislators who seem to be really angling to ban the social media platform at the same time that they were pretty indifferent mm -hmm. to what happened with the Twitter hearings and evidence that the U.S. government was trying to influence our own social media platforms. So what do you make of all of this? Yeah. So we're going to talk about TikTok in greater detail uh, a little bit later. Um, look, I've similarly had a lot of a lot of those criticisms of Trudeau and of Biden, uh, particularly relating to COVID subjects. So I get why it sounds a little rich for them to be bemoaning authoritarianism. I mean, of course, there's no now, China also did a lot of those same, like, COVID, very militaristic lockdown-type things, you know, lock people in their homes for actually far longer than the U.S. or Canada did. Um, Russia started this war. So, uh, so I, 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 I think it is fine to, uh, for, for the, to, be, to portray them as the greater authoritarians. But what does that, at the end of the day, obligate us to do with respect to this war? Uh, you know, where they're talking about NATO and we must defend every inch of NATO territory. That's fine. Ukraine isn't part Ukraine of NATO. Yes. And we've spent, sent billions of dollars to them, not defending a NATO country, defending a country that explicitly is not part of NATO. If we want, we, and we kept them in this limbo for years that has helped, that is one of the um, reasons for this conflict in the first place. Russia not wanting NATO, uh, Ukraine to become part of NATO. Of course, if Ukraine had become part of NATO, then it would have been under explicit protection. It was in this middle ground. And if, we, if or we could have said, no, they're never joining NATO. And that would have been that. Maybe. Yes. So the, the status we left them in was just very, it was practically very stupid because it helped get us to this point. Yeah, I think that's right. And what is still so frustrating over a year after the beginning of this crisis, Russia's invasion, is that that aspect of what precipitated the conflict is so absent from mainstream media coverage that you'll bring it up to folks and they still act completely surprised. I mean, just a few months ago, I interviewed Ro Khanna on my podcast, maybe it was last fall, and there seemed to be a real disconnect, even from what I consider to be a very intelligent and informed legislator who is kind of known on the left and gets accolades on the left 
for uh, his progressivism on um, Yemen and uh, other kinds of conflicts in the Middle East, was seemed to be genuinely naive as to why it was that so many leftists in particular were frustrated about the um, constant framing of the conflict as unprovoked and uh, seeming kind of historical ignorance about all of these moments where George Bush, was uh, too, was really criticized for making statements about Ukraine joining NATO that were seen to be kind of like poking at war and poking at Russia that he had to walk back. Joe Biden, before this conflict emerged, made some statements about Ukraine and Russia that were roundly criticized because of how antagonistic they were uh, to Russia. And now everyone is trying to memory hole all of that and pretend that there was never anything that the West did to provoke this crisis in the least. And the problem with that, of course, is that if you're not willing to re recognize what precipitated the conflict, you, there's almost no hope at all in figuring out how to unwind the conflict. I saw Trudeau was uh, marching in a, a parade uh, in the last day or so, I think, after the Biden visit, and he, he got heckled. We don't have the rights to this footage, so we can't show any of it. But he was heckled by uh, some protesters saying, you know, why are you sending billions of dollars to aid in and continue this NATO proxy war? So people are clearly upset about this. People are upset about, you know, the treatment of the truckers and, and uh, you know, freezing of bank accounts and all of that that occurred in Canada. You know, we, again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but we, we still maintain a, a policy that I think is fairly authoritarian of not letting unvaccinated people who are not American citizens come to this country. We turned just turned away Novak Djokovic. This is something no other advanced Western country does. I, it's not, maybe, maybe you don't think it's the biggest deal in the world, but it's, it's a stupid policy yeah, look, that we still have. We have two million people in prison, the largest prison population yeah, in the stuff. world, and not just adjusted for population. We have more people in prison than China does. So, I mean, look, and this isn't whataboutism or false equivalencies, right. but the reality is that many world leaders use charges of authoritarianism to justify interventionist projects constantly, right? They talk about humanitarian abuses and authoritarian abuses and speech abuses and the like to justify all kinds of projects which you can or cannot agree with based on their merits, but they're being shoehorned in via these like generalized principles we're all supposed to hold. And if all of these countries are guilty to a certain degrees of these kinds of accusations, then you know, what, what does that even mean? And should they just be making the case for why they want to intervene in one conflict or not based on the marriage without trying to pull on our heartstrings or say we're really doing this to save X, Y, and Z population? Yeah, absolutely. Here's an interview we had with a Canadian author outlining the frustrations that the working class have with Justin Trudeau. Let's watch some of that. BJ, I have to say, like, it, the, the watching that, covering that, reporting on it um, from afar, it was... It was one of these moments where it was so clear to me what the right side was. I mean, I felt that we were watching the biggest labor action in certainly, you know, in, that I had ever seen. Um, and immediately the response from the powers that be, from Trudeau, from government, from the mainstream media here in the U.S. and certainly in Canada was these people are Nazis. And it was just a perfect encapsulation of something I think happens a lot, which is um, whenever the class divide threatens to be exposed, they call the people who ha are on the wrong side of it bigots. And I, I guess my question to you would be, I know what it was like to watch that. It was horrifying. What was it like to experience that? Well, let me answer by pulling out, uh, you know, my, my, my Gen David, so you can all see that uh, me being a Nazi is, is definitely a stretch. Um, and I said in uh, one of the many interviews that unlike Prime Minister Blackface, 
Some of us actually have relatives that are still buried in mass graves in Europe, and it's quite insulting and quite disgusting. But that's all they have, because there's never any policy, there's never any ideas. And in this, this particular instance, there was never even, even an attempt, an attempt to talk to us and reach out to us, because all branches of government were blaming each other, this is what we learned in the commission, and trying to defer responsibility to one another. And then when nothing was getting done, they just, you know, Pr Prime Minister uh, Blackface just brought down the, ha the hammer and decided it's time to crush the most peaceful protest in Canadian history, full of soup kitchens and bouncy castles and saunas and hot tubs and barbecues and all that sort of stuff. And the only um, violation that I could see the entire time was perhaps parking infringements. So this is what we've done now in Canada. When there's parking infringements, we introduce Canada's version of martial law. And it's come to the point that these people are so incompetent that they're dangerous. Yeah. Well, I quite enjoyed my visit to Canada. I, I, the last time I was there was, uh, I'm from the Detroit area originally, so it's near near Canada. Mm -hmm. So we took a sixth grade field trip to Toronto. This was the, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> this was the last time, that was the last time I'd, I'd ever been there. Um, I The people were un failingly polite. Yeah. I know that's like the stereotype of Canadians. It was so accurate. I overheard an argument in the hotel bar between um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the waiter had accidentally overcharged one of the people, one of the customers, and, and they were fighting because the, the waiter was desperate to get it off the bill, and the customer was saying, no, I'll be back here tomorrow. It's fine. You can just owe me one. And they would not like they were both being so nice about it they were having a fight over who could be more nice about it i just that's so funny that you mentioned that because there was like a viral TikTok going around on, on twitter last week that was crazy did you see that where they there was like a traffic incident and two guys got out of their cars they were fighting kind of wrestling on the ground they resolved it there was a clear winner they shook hands and went back to their cars <laughs> and just went off and people it's were saying this is the most canadian thing that ever happened i was also told i had to try a I, I don't i've never heard of this drink before i don't know if it's a canadian drink i don't know if it's an ontario drink i have no <laughs> idea but it was called a caesar and which is the name of my dog so i, yeah, I of, of course, course needed to try it. it was basically a bloody mary Okay. Do you it, have reasons of why they call it? Call I have it? no idea. Okay. And Bloody Mary is not my favorite drink, but I, I you liked I, it in Canada. I, I received it in the the spirit <laughs> in which it was intended, and I did. Fit but what it. about the speech stuff? Did you resolve uh, the country's uh, social media? Issues? So we had a debate on whether uh, social media is undermining democracy. Mm -hmm. The team debate. I had Jeff Jarvis was on my mm -hmm. team. I don't know if you know who that is. He's a professor, and uh, well, I don't want to spoil it because it, it was taped, and I, I think it comes out later in this week. But I was. Pretty happy about okay, well, we'll all have to stay tuned for that and for the rest of the programming today on Rising. Stick around. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, and then there were none. That's the name of a famous detective novel by the acclaimed mystery author Agatha Christie, and it's also the fate of all words and phrases that could possibly be viewed by the most delicate, sensitive people as somehow offensive. Indeed, Christie's books are getting the same treatment as works of fiction by celebrated writers uh, like the James Bond author Ian Fleming and also Roald Dahl. Now, we actually discussed this on Rising a few weeks ago. Here's a refresher on some of those changes. The book publisher Puffin is rewriting Roald Dahl's classic children's books so his literature can, quote, continue to be enjoyed by all today. Edits have been made to change descriptions of the characters' physical appearances, including Augustus Gloop being changed to enormous instead of fat, and Mrs. Twit is no longer ugly and beastly. 
She's just beastly. In his book, The Witches, a paragraph explaining that witches are bald beneath their wigs ends with a new line, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Gender-neutral terms have been added as well. The Oompa Loompas from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory were described as small men. Now they are small people. And the Cloud Men from James and the Giant Peach are now Cloud People. Well, now it's happening to Agatha Christie, according to the Daily Mail. And some of these changes are baffling. Christie's publisher, HarperCollins, is removing insults, okay, and also references to ethnicity. Now, some references to ethnicity are insulting. In one passage, a judge is described as having an Indian temper, so that's gone. But in other passages, Christie's merely describing characters' ethnicities, not in a mocking or a racist way, but just in order to give readers a more complete mental picture of the character in question. For instance, in the book Death on the Nile, some characters are described as Nubian. Nubians are an ethnic group in northern Africa, in Egypt. It's not an insult to describe someone like that, nor is it an insult to describe a, character, a Jewish character as a Jew, as Christie does in her debut novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. A servant character described as black is no longer identified as such, and references to a character's beautiful white teeth, now they're just beautiful teeth as if describing them as white was reinforcing some racist idea? I think we're reading too much into that. Why are we doing this? Who is demanding that? Great books, who's demanding that great books no longer include any details about characters' appearances or ethnicity? Should we no longer acknowledge someone for being white or African or Indian or Jewish at all? Liberal progressives are currently outraged about Republican attempts to remove LGBT references from books that appear in public school classrooms. Democrats have described a law aimed at doing this in Florida as the don't say gay bill. And I think that law is bad. But publishers sanitizing their bookshelves are doing the same thing. Don't say black, don't say Jew, so on. Readers are not demanding these changes to the extent anyone wants them. It's progressive, liberal sensitivity readers. The publishing industry's glorified DEI consultants. The author, Kat Rosenfeld, described this class of censors thusly. The rise of sensitivity reading seems to reflect an obsession with policing language in service of a hypothetical person who's not only maximally sensitive, but also not very smart. At a moment of ascendant identitarianism in so many institutions, sensitivity readers seem part of a larger insidious trend in the arts, one that stigmatizes imagination and would, taken to its logical conclusion, make fiction itself categorically impossible. And while Christie, Fleming, and Dahl are already published authors, there are so many writers whose work will never see the light of day or will get killed off at some point in the publishing process because a sensitivity reader decrees that they're the wrong sort of person to tell the story. Educational and cultural institutions should not outsource publishing decisions to the most unreasonable people in the entire world. And we should not seek to make the right written word so sanitized, so uninteresting, that it fails to provoke anyone. They're not making literature better. Case closed. So more of these kinds of changes. And in this case, they were just changing a, a lot of, not all the time, but mostly they're just changing act, just descriptions of people. Yeah, I mean, I, so I first heard about this this morning. I saw a tweet from a friend of mine. We used to work together at Current Affairs magazine, a lefty socialist mm -hmm. mag. So this is, as from, far as I've seen, oh, and she was she was agreeing with you that yes. the, the sanitation shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Um, so this seems like 
your point is right. Who is asking for this? It doesn't seem like anybody, no. anybody normal across the ideological spectrum really wants this to happen. It does seem to be this kind of deep eye pushed within the publishing world, which is, again, this problem that keeps coming up with DEI. It seems to be designed to protect the interest, mm. of, like kind of the legal interest of publishers, businesses, things like that, as opposed to actually trying to get at any sort of equality in the real world or actually protect the interests of employees, which is ostensibly why HR should really be there. Of course, it isn't. So you're getting these weird misfires where they're changing norms, they're editing text for an audience that doesn't really want it, only to create outrage, and outrage that, frankly, is backlash against leftists who don't even agree with these kinds of policies. So from my perspective, it's very frustrating indeed. Right. It ends up humiliating. It, ma it makes uh, progressives and leftists look bad, even though they're not calling for it. There, no one's calling for it. No one's no, calling I, for it. I will it. say that it's perfectly—I I haven't read these books, and I don't know in the entire context of all of these changes that have been made. Mm -hmm. But it's perfectly fair for individuals to take offense at things that are in books, sure. to decide that they don't want to read those books to their children or offer them up to their children, to, you know, if, if I were a parent that suffered from alopecia share some other kind of, you know, mm -hmm. condition that caused me to be bald or maybe I just wear a wig for fun and I saw a yeah. certain kind of language and didn't want my kid to internalize that or if my kid was bald and didn't and had to wear a wig because of some kind of condition. I can, I, you can make those kind of decisions yeah. on a case-by-case -case basis. But I think, and I felt this way about the monuments when people wanted to turn the, tear the monuments down after Charlottesville too. There is something that is actually giving a pass to sentiments of yesteryear to erase them from history in that way. And I would rather engage with them head on and talk about why I do or do not agree with something from the past mm -hmm. than basically pretend the bad thing never existed. Because there's a, another movement happening in this country right now, of course, where in Florida in particular, there's efforts to erase certain books from the criteria, from the cur curriculum, um, you know, erase entire disciplines like African-American history from the AP studies uh, opportunities that students have there. Uh, take, to change the Rosa Parks story into a story about a woman who just happened to sit on a bus and get kicked off for no reason, not a race. We're not talking about yeah. why. And I think that's more dangerous than someone calling. Well, that's why I want to make that comparison because yeah. it felt a, a little bit. I was trying to get you on my side. Yeah, I, I agree with sure. you a little bit on on that stuff. More than a little bit on that stuff. Uh, and, and this felt similarly like trying to again not. It's not the books don't have it. They're mystery novels. They don't really have an agenda. I mean, you can critique the time period they were written in, whatever, but they're, we're removing, the publisher's removing just descriptions of characters that just add some kind of detail to, oh, this is a Jewish person, this is an African person, this is a, that it's not, it's like almost assuming, I guess, that Christie, because she was a product of a distant time period, had some ill uh, intention toward those people, but it, it's not, you, you gotta really read it into the text, it's not actually there. And it, it, right, it's akin to not encountering the kind of LGBT content or something in that, that some schools are, no, we can't have kids being exposed. Well, just, it's just descriptions. It's not necessarily yeah. advocating for a kind of lifestyle or ethnicity, it's just telling you more about the person. For, for sure, look, I don't wanna act naive about yeah. the fact that there are ways that people tend to use language that connote mm -hmm. a derision. Uh, not in every case, and certainly not with a historical gloss on it, the way we're talking about these older books here. But we all know, you know, we all, you know, kind of raise an eyebrow if someone refers to someone as, you know, 
I, this Jew yesterday versus a Jewish wow. person yesterday. We, we, let, let, oh, let's sure. not pretend that we don't know <laughs> what the context is of why these kind of changes are going to be being made. Um, you know, you know that black instead of a black person. Like, we yeah. know that these words. Well, but the respectable way to say those <laughs> things has changed over time. If, yes. From, like now, if you said the blacks, that would sound Correct. offensive. But that that was not. Because you're supposed to say African American, now you're supposed to be a person of color. It changes, correct? Right? Yes. All, so all, all I'm saying is, I do want to, I do, I do want to acknowledge that I understand the purpose behind some of these changes. I'm not going to pretend that like just it, there's, it's completely innocuous with the, some of this language is. But yeah, it's, it's in a historical context. To the extent that people are offended or confused, I would rather they talk through it if they're teach, giving it to a kid or teaching it to a new audience that doesn't understand. Talk through it. Talk about how language changes. And honestly, I think that's what really much more productive because. We're all continuing to be in a process of language changing. Language and norms will continue to change. And the more people realize that, that those changes can happen without damning everyone in the past, I think the more flexible people will be about future language changes that we're in the midst of now. I got to get you into Agatha Christie. She's fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm open a big to fan. it. Uh, the Murder of Roger Ackroyd is my favorite Christie book. It has a fantastic twist in it. All right. I'm open to it, Robbie. All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Hundreds of thousands of protesters entered the streets in Israel today in response to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the country's legal system. Striking workers have already caused major disruptions to commerce and shipping. They've called off work after Netanyahu fired his own defense minister because he called for a pause on the plan that would see the prime minister take considerable control over the judiciary, including the ability to appoint judges and overturn rulings. In an interview with Talk TV, Netanyahu assured Piers Morgan that democracy is safe in Israel despite the unrest. Israel is in turmoil at the moment, facing what some fear could turn out to be civil war, okay. fears of a potential third intifada. Is this your biggest challenge right now? It's a very big challenge, but I, I think that the prospects for Israel are great. I think there is a, a lot of concern about the democratic judicial reform that we want to move ahead with. But people think that it's going to, uh, uh, to result in a, in a fissure that I don't think will last, because people will see at the end that Israel was a democracy, is a democracy, and will be even a stronger democracy after this democratic reform. So I think, uh, I think you're right. There's a lot of tension right now. I, you know, I wish it wasn't so, but uh, I'm, I'm quite confident that we'll get over this, uh, this difficulty because, you know, you have to reform things that get ossified. And in Israel, what we've had is uh, the ossification of the, 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 the imbalance between the three branches of government that has to be corrected. The prime minister is set to speak about the protests on Israeli television sometime today. Joining us now to weigh in is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and Partner at Democracy Partners, Joel Rubin. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, maybe you could start off by telling us more about what these reforms would actually accomplish and why Netanyahu thinks they're so important. Yeah, well, Robbie, reforms is just a false way to describe them. These are not reforms. What these are are an attempt to uh, have a, a judicial coup in Israel to essentially undermine and, and eliminate the Supreme Court's ability to be a check on the balance of power in Israel's democracy and give fiat to the prime minister. Uh, it's important to remember that in Israel, the Knesset, the parliament, that is a body that is also the one that appoints the prime minister who sits in that body. So. There's no real executive legislative uh, uh, tension like we have here in the United States. 
the only uh, check on that executive's power in Israel has been the Supreme Court. And now these proposed uh, changes would uh, allow this current prime minister to appoint more judges and allow the current Knesset, the parliament, to override any decision by the Supreme Court, that meaning that it would essentially be uh, one man, one party rule. So we heard Netanyahu describe this as reform, saying that the, the current system has become ossified. What justification is he using? What is he pointing to to argue that some kind of changes need to be made? And can you help us understand a little bit what the how the various players uh, in Israel are reacting to this? Obviously, there's people protesting in the street. What level of approval do you think Netanyahu has for these kinds of things? And, and where is the where are the objections coming from? Yeah, Brie, right. This whole idea that it's ossified is, is concoction. It's, it's just not true. What it is is an issue that Benjamin Netanyahu didn't even run on when he was running recently. He ran on other issues related to Israel, and then his coalition came in and wanted to make this the first priority. Uh, the opposition is broad, and the opposition is deep, and the opposition is not partisan. Uh, we are seeing the whole breadth of Israeli civil society come out, uh, in particular after the firing of the defense minister last night. The defense minister that Netanyahu himself chose from his own political party to safeguard the nation. That defense minister uh, two nights ago said that Netanyahu should stop with this, this maneuvering. Uh, in addition to that, the president of Israel, a consensus figure, has said he should stop. Uh, we're seeing the labor unions, the school universities, business leaders all come out and say this has gone too far, including Defense Force reservists uh, who are saying they will not fly, they will not go to their reserve rotational duty. And, and so uh, the opposition is, is the kind that we really haven't seen in Israel ever in its history uh, when it comes to protesting the government's actions. Israel is a very unified state. There's a lot of common purpose. Uh, the whole country goes to serve in the military at age 18. And, and so there's a real common sense of bond uh, within society. But this is different, and this is seen as a push by the extreme right of Israeli politics, uh, individuals who have a very hard right settlement mentality that do not want to see uh, uh, the courts, which have oftentimes been the last check against extreme settlement maneuvering, they don't want to see uh, those, those courts uh, in place any longer. And that's why Israelis, broadly speaking, are objecting. You know, I think it's interesting to compare to the U.S. situation. So here in Israel, you have Netanyahu, a right-leaning figure, trying to exercise, uh, trying to, you know, get more power over the court for the legislative function, for the, the executive. And you explained those are, you know, concentrated in the same, uh, the same body. Uh, in, in the U.S., I mean, I hear people on the left, liberal, I mean, fairly mainstream Democrats call for reigning in the Supreme Court, which is, you know, conservative-controlled, or even abolishing the Supreme Court. Um, outright, I, I guess with that, in, 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 in the argument that those people make is that it would be more democratic to take power away from the Supreme Court, give it back to the legislative and executive bodies. So here, that's that's the reverse. I mean, is there a is there a tension there? I mean, are people calling for the abolition of the Supreme Court or significant reforms to the U.S. Supreme Court? Are they acting out of um, anti that would, they would say that's pro democracy, but that would be consistent with what Netanyahu is trying to do, isn't it? Well, what Netanyahu is trying to do is erode dem democracy in Israel. Uh, democracy globally is under assault. We're seeing it in Hungary, we saw it in Poland, uh, Brazil, here in the United States, where institutions are continually eroded. Institutions that safeguard the rules of law, that provide checks and balances. And so that's what 
the Netanyahu approach is right now in Israel is to erode and eliminate a uh, essentially a, a safeguard for Israeli democracy. I have to mention, I think this is very important as well, that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is under indictment. And it, it's lost on no one in Israel that if these reforms go through, this push goes through, uh, he will potentially be able to exonerate himself and no longer have to face any kinds of criminal indictment. And that's just a, a bridge way too far. Now, comparing it to the United States, you know, we have three branches of government written into our constitution. This is also very important. Israel does not have a constitution. Uh, at the founding of the state of Israel, there was a decision made to not write a new constitution. It was an agreement between uh, uh, the founder of the state, David Ben-Gurion, and religious parties that the one constitution would be the Jewish Bible underneath it, but there would be a, a, a administrative law built up over decades. So there's no real constitution. The Supreme Court is that bedrock right now, and it's been uh, nonpartisan for decades. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not following the American tradition. He's actually going opposite the American tradition. Well, Joe, let me ask you this. I wonder, there, there, you know, we just did a story about uh, Trudeau and Biden talking about their pushback against global authoritarianism, how the, the last bull work, work against it. What kind of uh, responses, what kind of uh, statements have come from uh, the West, particularly the United States, about what's been going on in Israel in these protests? And have there been any questions put to um, Biden's press team or anybody else in the administration about what they feel about what Benjamin Netanyahu is doing here? Well, Brie, as you know, nothing that goes on in Israel is disconnected from American politics. Mm. Uh, Pro-Israel advocacy is very strong. And so the president and his team have been weighing and balancing. But we're seeing a lot of activity coming from Capitol Hill calling for the president to get engaged. Last night, the National Security Council spokeswoman made a strong statement in particular in response to the firing of the Israeli defense minister, who is a direct partner with the United States military. Uh, and we do, it's worth reminding folks, and I'm sure people know this, uh, we provide three to $4 billion of military aid to Israel directly. And so Netanyahu fired our primary interlocutor, and that's very destabilizing from a security relationship perspective. So uh, there's been more voices in the EU. Rishi Sunak as well met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. They did very gently behind closed doors. But uh, democracies around the world are uh, very concerned. This is why we see the support for Ukraine right now in, in, in the, the fight against Russia. Uh, NATO countries piling in to support it. Uh, to lose democracy like Israel would be a disaster for the global democracy movement. And clearly the Israeli people are having none of it. And that's why they've been going out in the streets now for three months and counting. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. More Rising after this. Well, we were, of course, watching the TikTok hearings last week where there was tremendous bipartisan interest in banning the popular app uh, from uh, the U.S., but one congresswoman who does not agree with that approach is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who uh, has sided with lawmakers who actually oppose banning the Chinese app TikTok. She explained why in this video on TikTok. Why would we be proposing a ban regarding such a significant issue without being clued in on this at all? It just doesn't feel right to me. And additionally, this case needs to be made to the public. We are a government by the people and for the people. And if we want to make a decision as significant as banning TikTok, 
and we believe or someone believes that there's really important information that the public deserves to know about why such a decision would be justified, that information should be shared with the public as well. But frankly, I think a lot of this is putting the cart before the horse because our first priority should be in protecting your ability to exist without social media companies harvesting and commodifying every single piece of data about you, without you, and without your consent. AOC further justified her position by explaining that the U.S. has never gone so far as to implement a total ban of any social media company. She also added that many applications, not just TikTok, collect a wealth of information from its users without significant privacy and data protections. So this was interesting. I, I, I should be clear. I mostly agree with what she says in uh, in that video. Uh, I, I look, banning TikTok would be a very s radical, serious thing to do. It's a it's a beloved and popular social media app where tons and millions of young people use it to interact with their friends, express themselves creatively, to educate themselves. It's how a lot of them consume news. Um, that it would be what it would be radical to do that, to mm. ban one single app. This is, again, I don't even like government actions that are targeted against a specific company rather than industry specific ac across the, uh, you know, across the line. And there was a lot of, I think there were a lot of bad arguments made by lawmakers in these hearings. Uh, now, I look, I appreciate the potential national security concerns. I don't like the fact that this is a platform that, at least in theory, and I think sometimes in practice, the Chinese government can have significant input on the content. I understand the potential for them uh, using it to gather information. I, I will say that, um, and actually AOC alludes to that in, in that video, that, that law enforcement have not put forth uh, very tremendous evidence that this is, I believe it could be happening, but they, they didn't really prove that. There was no, as, as AOC said, there was no um, uh, uh, classified briefing to mm -hmm. Congress about what, like, if national security wants to behind closed doors say, well, here's the problem with mm -hmm. this. Go ahead and do that. They didn't do that. Yeah, and in fact, so there's a lot of vibes here on yeah, why it's bad. It was clear that legislators who supported a ban were really struggling themselves to come up with a theory of what the uh, national security risks really were. There was one clip in particular that went uh, sort of viral, in which a legislator seemed to have such a uh, tenuous understanding of how Wi-Fi works and the security implications of being on a Wi-Fi network, that he asked um, uh, Chu a series of bizarre questions that Chu handled with a lot of grace, perhaps more grace than the lawmaker uh, uh, yeah, we can, required. We can actually watch Let's cue that. that up. Mr. Chu, does TikTok access the home Wi-Fi network? Only if the user turns on the Wi-Fi. I'm sorry, I may not understand the So if I have question. a TikTok app on my phone and my phone is on my home Wi-Fi network, does TikTok access that network? It will have to, to access the network to get connections to the internet, if, if that's the question. Is it possible then that it could access other devices on that home Wi-Fi network? Co Congressman, we do not do anything that is beyond any industry norms. Um, I believe the answer to your question is no. It could be technical. Let me get back to you. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you could answer that. <laughs> yeah, that was actually very reminiscent of the hearings uh, from a year or two ago with Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and mm -hmm. others where they were being asked from big questions from people on both sides of the aisle that were just so ignorant of the underlying technology. Yeah, and there were, um, there were some also that were like, well, in China, TikTok has more educational content. In China, children aren't allowed to use it. Why, why are you protecting Chinese children when American children aren't being protected? And he's like, 
These are your laws. You you want to have access to this stuff. China has more restrictive laws about what people can see. If 100%. you want that, you guys I, yeah. can do that. <laughs> yeah, they, right. They were saying yeah, some people will make this argument that well, in China they don't allow kids access to this material. Well, that's because they don't allow kids access to criticism of the Chinese government. They don't allow them access to information about Tiananmen Square. They have a they don't have a First Amendment and they have a highly right. restricted is it is it authoritarian? Or yeah. you think it's good to protect children from X, Y, and Z content and right. why? Why are you trying to ask a, a you're concerned right. about the influence of the CCP, but now you want the CCP ostensibly to create educational programming for the U.S. kids? Like, that, which way do you want it? That's the ultimate hypocrisy <laughs> here in saying that, right, I, so I agree that China is a, is a less free country because it doesn't have some of the protections for speech, political expression that we have. They have more tight regulation of, of, of media. Media is more state-run and state-controlled. We don't have that, so we have more of a Wild West approach, uh, one I absolutely agree with as like a supporter of the Western Enlightenment, but that should constrain our government from doing brazen things like wholesale banning of speech, because this is ultimately speech. I think um, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression uh, had a really good statement on the TikTok matter, so I, I want to mm. read it. They said, banning TikTok should be a last resort. A ban would shut down an immensely popular means of communications for tens of millions of Americans. Um, legislation that targets social media platforms, including TikTok, for their moderation practices or their distribution of propaganda or other allegedly harmful content raises serious First Amendment concerns. Government retaliation for or intrusion into a private social media platform's exercise of editorial discretion threatens platforms' own expressive rights under the First Amendment and potentially that of other speakers and publications, too. Uh, they said, and Fire goes on to say, we recognize the significant national security threat posed by troves of sensitive information in the hands of an adversarial government, but any government regulation that seeks to address data privacy of TikTok should be generally applicable and use least restrictive means necessary to ensure privacy of American citizens while not unduly burdening First Amendment yeah, rights. Yeah, that sounds largely right and echoes some of the sentiments that I, I saw from uh, big free speech advocates like Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. He argued that the proposed TikTok ban isn't being driven by, a by national security concerns. Instead, it's elite's strategy to deflect attention. Yesterday, he tweeted, quote, set aside the TikTok debate, American elites and their, pre uh, their package discourse has increasingly relied on blaming the pathologies and suffering of Americans on foreign adversaries, Russia and China, as a means of distracting attention from the culpability of our own elite class. And our government has been trying to do all—we've covered this time and time again— all of the, the pressure that American bureaucrats, government bureaucrats, the FBI, the CDC, the State Department, the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, about COVID, about jokes about the election. They're mm -hmm. routinely flagging accounts for deletion saying they're Russian bots and they're not Russian bots. Our government is doing this to uh, to to the American companies. So that and that, like let's not distract from that. And and Republicans really had their, you know, their eye on the prize there at at the a previous hearing where Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger were involved. And like let's not lose sight of that. That's really important stuff and yeah. they're getting a little bit distracted by uh, by like our 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 kids kids love this app like you that should be a factor here how many people enjoy using sure. it what you're gonna it? yank it all away from them. Chu um, said in his initial TikTok predating this hearing that I think it was 150 million Americans mm -hmm. use this app. That's half the country. That's an incredible uh, amount of people who you're stripping this you know uh, this application from. 
that is going to have political consequences. And it was, I think, kind of smart of Chu to foreground that and say, this is, you know, yeah. it's not me taking this from you. It's your own government. And are there going to be political consequences from the people it's who very want to do this? It's vandalizing. It's yeah. very, you know, I, I really oppose um, efforts to, you know, treat kids as, like, pathetic and helpless and, and children until they're, like, age 25 <laughs> or, like, prevent them from entering the workforce forever. We clash over some of those child <laughs> labor laws. But this is a little bit doing that same thing. Like, they're supposed to be making, like, college admission essays and figuring out the rest of their lives at 16, and you're saying they don't have the emotional maturity or their brain development or whatever to use a to use TikTok? That's yeah, it doesn't I, make it, any sense it does to me. feel a lot like, and a lot of these debates, we, people who are trying to control school curricula, people who are trying to control what's on TikTok, people who both are mad at the CCP for authoritarianism, but also mad that the CCP doesn't limit uh, content for U.S. kids and make them smarter and give them the good educational content that apparently they're getting in China. It's a lot of folks who want other people to raise their kids. You know, they want to outsource all of this. But the thing is, you're never going to be able to, the school is never going to be able to impose all the values you want your kids to have, nor should they. TikTok is not supposed to be raising your children. Nothing is supposed to be doing it. And to the extent that there are valid concerns about what people are being exposed to, what they should learn, and what they're internalizing, I think there's just no shortcuts around this stuff. It's going to come down to parenting. And if you don't want your kid to be on TikTok, you pay for the cell phone plan. So that's, uh, that's up to you to decide. Amen to that. <laughs> All right, more rising right after this. Podcaster Joe Rogan gave his take on the impending arrest of Donald Trump in last Wednesday's episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. Here he is chatting about it with MMA fighter and Trump supporter Jorge Masvidal. Let's watch. They're talking about arresting him for paying a girl to stop talking about them having sex. I thought that was a good deal. I thought it's a good deal. You pay someone. Didn't Clinton do that? Didn't John, John Edwards got in trouble for doing that, but he didn't go to jail. The one dude that's fighting for us, that's actually for the people, they want to crucify him. But they just don't want him president again. And they know that if he runs against Biden, Biden is so old. And television host Bill Maher also weighed in this weekend on the same question. He said arresting the former president would be a huge mistake. I really don't want to give Donald Trump the satisfaction of talking about him. I thought when he was gone, he'd be gone a little bit. But, you know, there is an ex-president out there now who's going to be arrested, possibly. And he is talking about violence in the streets of his supporters if he does. So, I don't know. I kind of have to say or get your opinion on, on this just one more time. We can be quick about it. But I just would like to go on record of, uh, saying I think this is a colossal mistake if they bring these charges. Um, not this one. You know, I mean, yes, he's done a lot of bad things, and I'm sure he did this. Everything they accuse him of done, he did. But first of all, it's not going to work. It's going to be rocket fuel for his 2024 campaign. And it's just going to look to MAGA Nation like, oh, you know, you tried with Mueller. You tried with Ukraine. You tried with January 6th. Now we go to the porn star. Really? You're down to that? Yeah, I mean, I, Bill Maher is uh, speaking for a whole lot of people, uh, I think even on the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, who are particularly w worried about the, the logic of this case in particular, which has a lot of issues. There might be other uh, potentially stronger charges against Donald Trump relating to Georgia, uh, coming down the pipeline. This is, yeah, it's, it's in involving a payment to Stormy Daniels facilitated by Michael Cohen. There's a question of whether Donald Trump knew about it. There's a question of whether it violates campaign finance law. There's a question of uh, the statute of limitations. There's all these kind of confounding details. To Joe Rogan's point, 
Yes. As, as, now, the, the Clinton payments, I think, were, was a result of a settlement yeah. uh, of a legal action. But, and then the John Edwards thing, he was prosecuted, uh, but he was acquitted by a jury. But I, I can see how you would say that there's kind of a similar principle here involved. And like he, it, was a, it was a contractual arrangement. Here's some money to stop talking about this. The, the confounding factor in the, the Trump part of it is like, well, maybe it was a campaign contribution. Yes. There's laws around that. But what counts as a campaign contribution well, is not, a look, little bit It, it was an nebulous. election law violation. The, the parallel yeah. that I think is most apt is the one that I think Russell Brand made last week and that we talked about between... Uh, Donald Trump's inappropriate use of campaign funds here and the inappropriate use of campaign funds by Hillary Clinton to pursue the Steele dossier, for which she had to pay an $8,000 fine and the DNC had to pay, I think, a $150,000 fine or something yeah. like that, maybe lo low 100-figure fine. A reflection that she shouldn't have done it. It technically violates some law, but right. it's not the biggest deal in the world, and this but, is kind of similar. But there's, there's this conflation that's going on here, which I find to be rather distasteful as a progressive who's, you know, frankly, supportive of sex work, that—, that it seems like liberals are trying to embarrass Donald Trump and his choice to sleep with Stormy Daniels, doing this weird kind of like a, a toxicity by a, a prox a association to a kind of an unsavory figure, and in doing so, I think betraying some liberal ideals in the process. I mean, the, the point isn't ooh, lol. Donald Trump slept with Stormy Daniels and indicting Stormy Daniels in the process. Right. The point is, it was a campaign finance violation. The illegal aspect of this is the campaign finance violation, not sleeping with someone, not having an affair, not all of these kind of like weird moral crimes that people mm -hmm. are trying to legislate in the court of public opinion. If it's a campaign finance violation and that's what's against the law, then you have to compare it to what Hillary Clinton did and make a decision about whether or not people are treating these situations the same way. How did we frame the idea, the chance of lock her up when it was Hillary Clinton that was under the um, microscope a few years ago. You know, and did we see that as anti-democratic? Did we see that as a kind of authoritarian impulse to lock up political actors that you don't agree with? Yes, that's what the liberals thought at the time. And I just can't get past the hypocrisy of this, especially when, as you pointed out, there are much more substantive crimes that Donald Trump has been accused of. The, the strategic question of why this New York case is going ahead before the Georgia case I don't know if it's just a goof. I don't know if it's uh, New York DAs trying to make a name for themselves, having been under pressure for not being tough enough on crime or trying to deflect from not being ha having progressive support them or having tough on crime people support yeah. them because they're they're kind of charting this middle ground and thinking this is a slam dunk for them. But whatever it is, it seems to be really undermining a national I strategy I to undermine the, the former president. 10,000%. I agree with everything you just said. Uh, then they, the question becomes, uh, does this, to to Bill Maher's point, um, is this going to help Trump? In it, you know, I, I don't, obviously not in the general, but is this giving more, uh, more, putting more force, more energy behind his attempts to win the nomination again. Um, there was uh, some reporting. I think there was a piece in, I believe it was Politico over the weekend about uh, Ron DeSantis maybe stalling a little bit, uh, losing some momentum. There's a perception, I think, even among people who are rooting for DeSantis, that how he handled this was not correct, that mm -hmm. he should have been more defiantly. We will absolutely, we would never, you know, we wouldn't co uh, cooperate with what the uh, the Manhattan DA is doing. We wouldn't uh, we wouldn't send Trump, you know we wouldn't <laughs> grab him, put him on a plane, and, and send him to New York if it came to the, to that. Uh, that he was a bit more dismissive of it and uh, and re referenced the hush money payment mm -hmm. to porn star mm -hmm. uh, several times, uh, and th 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 that wasn't good enough. Um, there's a 
Now, I, I don't know that, that that's correct. This was Politico's framing of it. I think there's a lot of people in the mainstream media who obviously lust for Trump to be the nominee again because uh, for a lot of news websites, journalistic outlets, not our show, but others, the, the, <laughs> the audience, the, what, what remains of the audience craves Trump-related content, mm -hmm. craves uh, resistance porn, mm -hmm. and wants him to be the nominee because it will be, it'll be good for their ratings or be mm -hmm. better for their ratings. They're, they're lost without him. You know, kill you. What would I do without you? The Joker-Batman yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Uh, so so, so they don't want DeSantis. So, so, they would, so they're going to cast his chance to get this nomination as, as, as the whole way through as, uh, as less likely than it probably is, in my view. But that yeah. does not mean it's necessarily wrong. And I, I've never, I think I've, I've known for, I, I'm coming off as like, as very um, high on DeSantis's chances. I want to be clear. I think DeSantis can defeat Trump for the nomination. I do not think it will be easy. Mm -hmm. I don't think it will be a sure thing. I think it will be a brutal battle to the end. I think anything's possible. I really do think not having seen the two of them on a debate stage together is a big what if. I, I think that so many people have failed to overcome Donald Trump from the Republican Party that my odds, if I, if I were a betting woman, I would, I would bet on I would just have to bet on Trump, mm -hmm. because that's what history has told us. There was a new poll out, uh, however, yesterday uh, uh, about what the head-to-head -head would look like between DeSantis and Trump in Iowa, in which DeSantis is actually uh, ahead. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the polls that I've seen so far do have Trump still squarely ahead of DeSantis. But in this poll, 45 percent of Iowa respondents said they would vote for DeSantis, over 37 percent who said they'd cast their vote for Trump. And that's an interesting reversal of uh, mm -hmm. trends that we've seen so far that does make me put an eyebrow up. But again, how they continue to handle all of these issues is a, is a black box. And whether or not Trump and there's a lot of sympathy if he is, in fact, arrested is a, is a big unknown. I do, I mean, I observe that a lot of folks who are kind of over electoral politics on the left and aren't that interested in um, uh, Marion Williamson's campaign, when The View started to go after Marion Williamson, were suddenly very angry and tweeting, well, I'm going to just like um, passive aggressively support her campaign or throw her a few bucks because we don't like the framing of this. It's so unfair. Why are you coming after the left in this way? It forced an identity of interest between these leftists and Marion Williamson, even if they didn't organically feel that. And I am, I do wonder whether or not an arrest of Trump, especially for what feels like a trumped-up charge, mm -hmm. will have the same result on the right. Yeah, this is kind of like the uh, the the Stormy Daniels payment thing is a little bit like the Mar-a-Lago raids yeah. stuff to me. We're like, okay, there's a sure there was some potential wrongdoing here, but again, it's wrongdoings other people have done. Uh, it, 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 right, it feels like they're out to get him. That's certainly what Republican voters think about the deep state and the federal bureaucracy and law enforcement in general. So, you know, if, if you, again, I've said this many times, if you aim for the king, you better not miss. <laughs> and these seem like perilous uh, uh, legal actions that could, that very, have high likelihood of failing and will certainly backfire. Yeah, and there wasn't even a perp walk in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> what, what, what if several people said that to put his mugshot on a t-shirt, it'll fund his entire campaign? Oh. <laughs> More rising right after this.
Twitter's valuation has sunk to $20 billion. That's down from $44 billion since Elon uh, Musk acquired the site. So that's quite a precipitous drop. Right, and it's making people ask questions about Elon Musk's strategy, namely the choice to pivot away from advertising dollars, which have diminished rapidly over the course of Elon Musk's stewardship of the website, and toward Twitter Blue, uh, a privileged subscription model wherein people pay, I believe it's $7 a month for uh, a suite of privileges, including a blue check mark, which previously was awarded on the basis of being a public figure of sorts. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily about how many followers you had. You could be, but if you were a journalist, if you were someone who could basically prove you were, who you were, represented yourself to be on the internet, you could get a blue check. Now people are having to pay $7 for their privilege and it's causing quite a stir and not really generating that much revenue. Apparently, uh, it's, he's only earned $11 million in mobile subscriptions, uh, which is uh, far below the amount that was previously uh, earned from advertising. So Elon's position is that it was unfair that celebrities, well-known people, got this perk that other people didn't. Now, if you want it, you have to pay for it. Um, I, I don't I don't like having something than having it taken away. And he also turned off uh, two-factor verification. You mm. have to get rid of two-factor ver verification. Feels like a, like a blackmail yeah. to get it. Um, I, like I, I I mean I I got it. Not I, in the air travel. Like if you want to skip the TSA line, you can sign up for Clear or mm -hmm. TSA PreCheck or something. It's like oh you get this perk. Like well I don't like the system to begin with. I, I don't I don't think it should be that way. Um, you, you can see how I feel about this. I I, I asked my uh, own Twitter followers to answer this poll. Can we put my tweet up? Uh, yeah, I described it as as blackmail. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Never. Live free or die, I mean, so I'm I mean, not going to get it. Because the thing is— I say that, I'll probably get it. You but. know, two-factor identification is a security measure that is more important for big accounts, right? Lots of people probably try to hack Beyonce or hack the president or hack— yeah. You know, Obama, was fam his Twitter account was famously hacked years ago, than some anonymous person. So the idea—I I, I appreciate Elon Musk's framing that everybody should be equal on the app, but to— Say that while not acknowledging that some people are facing more security risks and then trying to extort them into paying you money by stripping away their ability to protect themselves against that particular mm -hmm. security risk is kind of odd. Now, there was a battle between a high-profile blue check and Elon Musk that trended up until today on Twitter. William Shatner, of course, famously... Uh, 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 Star uh, somebody Trek. You, you care about from your, <laughs> Captain. From your nerd universe. Uh, James Tiberius Kirk uh, went head-to-head -head with Elon Musk uh, over the weekend. He said, hey, Elon, what is this about blue checks going away unless we pay Twitter? I've been here for 15 years giving away my time and witty thoughts all for bupkis. Now you're telling me that I have to pay for something you gave me for free? What is this? The Columbia Records and Tape Club? I roll emoji. Elon responded, it's more about treating everyone equally. There shouldn't be a different standard for celebrities in Again, my I appreciate opinion. that. I want to know, I would like to know more. I, I think Elon should make it clearer what the benefits of Twitter Blue are just beyond the check mark or other things. So I buy, I, I paid for Twitter Blue. Yeah. I paid for it a long time ago. You can post longer video clips. Yes, I paid for it under the previous Twitter regime. So what's the sell me on it? Well, I, I'm a content creator. So I have to. I produce videos from my podcast and regularly put them on Twitter. I have a much bigger Twitter audience than I do on YouTube or Instagram or any other social media platform. So if I, I want to advertise something I've done, I definitely put it on Twitter. And you know, either I have to get my producer to carefully edit down a, a, a clip down to two, two minutes and twenty seconds, which sometimes removes 
important context and is more of an editing lift for my producer, or there can be more flexibility. I pay for the privilege of being able to post longer videos. It can be a two minute, 50 second clip, a, two, a three minute clip, or even a 10 minute clip. And I can post the whole thing to uh, YouTube without having to get my producer to work you know, for an hour editing down something that doesn't really need to be edited down. But he told me Twitter would go back to being the way it used to be, where my, my recommended tab actually has relevant tweets for me, and my own tweets were going to be seen the way they, they were a few years ago before whatever shadow banning took place. I would pay, I would pay any <laughs> price for that. You could, well, charge, you could charge a million bucks for Twitter Blue, well, and I'd pay it. I, I, I probably would agree. But again, I, I don't find, I don't have like, like this uh, kind of ethical aversion to paying for it like so many people do. I don't either. I pay for YouTube premium. Sure. I mean, it's a convenience factor. I do think the blackmail aspect of the, the two-factor is a problem, even though, again, it won't affect yeah. me because I've been playing for paying for Twitter blue this whole time. But I want to ask you this. What do you make of William Shatner's argument that he's the one, you know, people come to Twitter because they're attracted by the presence of celebrities and being mm -hmm. able to engage in people with people directly, that a very small number of Twitter users are responsible for the overwhelming majority of Twitter content, that we're not paid to be on Twitter, that we're providing this service and attracting advertisers so that Elon can make money. And so that we, you know, people like William Shatner should therefore have the privilege of a blue check mark because their authenticity, their identity on the app being verified and have attracted people to the app are linked to Elon Musk's ability to make mm -hmm. money. Do you think that's a fair, a fair claim there? Well, yeah, Elon is saying that's how we used to make money. That's not how we're going to make money anymore. We're going to make money for having this subscription service that people pay for, mm -hmm. um, which is fair. Like he just has a different business model in mind. Um, I, I don't. The, the losing the two-factor verification part seems is, it seems not smart for making Twitter a safe site to participate in. Sure. Uh, so that doesn't seem good. If the benefits were clearer and better articulated, I think it would make more sense. There's just been so much. Like turmoil at Twitter. It's like a change. There's been so many changes, and I don't know. Like I don't know what perks you're going to get for Twitter Blue. Like if they're going to be always going to be there. I guess you can cancel at any time, so it's not a big deal. Although it's sometimes it can be a hassle to cancel things that are like automatic payments on your credit card. Uh, and he said he said he was going to put someone else in charge of Twitter. And yes. like, when is that going to happen? So okay, if you if you really want to know about all the the benefits of uh, Twitter Blue. Not only do you get to post longer videos, you can tweet up to 4,000 characters, which is something that I've I've noticed I can do. Again, I don't really take advantage of it. It's more like if a tweet is like three characters over instead of me having to sit there and edit it down and like change all my TWOs to the letter, the number two or whatever, I can just post it and it doesn't matter. Um, but it's, it's something. Uh, longer video upload, pri prioritized rankings and conversations. This feature prioritizes your replies on tweets that you interact with. You can undo a tweet. Um, you, you know, there's, there's other, there's custom navigation themes, NFT profile pictures. I mean, there's a whole list of things you can edit tweets. There's a whole list of things that you get for it. But to me, the fundamental question is, does Elon Musk miss the point of verification in the first place, which was not to benefit the person being verified mm -hmm. per se, but to provide assurances to everyone who goes on the site and wants to interact with people who are representing that they are themselves, that they are, in fact, 
who they said they were going to be. And it's it's ironic for a lot of folks, because remember when Elon Musk first got on the app, a bunch of people, and he got rid of, you know, he said he was going to get rid of verification. People rushed to pretend to be Elon Musk. Elon Musk got very upset about it and threw a tantrum on the app. And people said, well, this is deeply hypocritical. What we want out of verification is for to not be impersonated. You seem to not want to be impersonated either. Why is it okay for you to protect yourselves in this way, but other people well, who have notoriety? Pays, not only does he pay for Twitter Blue, he pays for the entire site. <laughs> He's like, I paid not, $44 billion, paid $44 for billion dollars to not be impersonated. <laughs> well, one other thing that has people rankled on the app and is raising questions about whether or not, you know, the, the, the new model is going to be successful is Elon's own behavior on the site. Obviously, he has said that he, uh, Twitter is a place where comedy is now uh, allowed to thrive. I forget his exact wording. Um, yeah, he tweets a lot of jokes. He tweets a lot of jokes. There were It's been rankling some people, and some people are asking whether or not this is part of why the app is seeming less attractive. Some people did flock to competitor apps. Not a ton, to be honest, but some people yeah. did flock. And advertisers sure as heck flocked. This was, there was a, one last week where he responded to Hakeem Jeffries with a, that's what she, she said joke. That trended because it was a very poor execution of a very easy joke to make, a joke that was already pretty puerile, juvenile, a low bar to begin with, but seemed to have no real relationship to Hakeem Jeffries' original statement. I'm no fan mm. of Hakeem Jeffries from a political perspective, but this also just felt sort of sad to me and is it maybe reflective of the quality of the app, <laughs> an app in decline. What do you make of this? Wait, comedy on Twitter. Bring back really good <laughs> Twitter comedy. No, I, I still see funny content on Twitter. Yeah, me. I mean, so, so do I. Weigh in in the comments. Let us know how you feel about this uh, And if you're going to drama. Twitter Blue, if you're going to... Respond to this black. I, I, I should stop talking. Like we will, we will, you know, we will go down with the ship. We will never get Twitter blue because I invariably will get it. But uh, yeah, then I'm gonna I'm gonna be accused of being a hypocrite. Yeah, I'm curious to know. We are biased. We are people who are advantaged by the verification process. So Currently, let it, let the us current verification yeah, current. process, which well, we're getting for free. But now we're gonna have to pay for it. You already paid. For it. I already paid for it. Yeah. So let us know if you think that we are just um, elites protecting our own interests, or if you see some value in people that you know and follow because they are who they are. Actually, having verification helps you out in your life as well. More rising after this. If you've ever shared a meme online of supermodel Tyra Banks imploding in anger or retweeted a gif of Michael Jordan crying or of drag queen RuPaul saying, girl, and you're a white person, you may be wearing digital blackface. This is according to a new piece that alleges that a practice where white people co-opt online expressions of black imagery, slang, catchphrases, or culture to convey comic relief or express emotions is a problem, CNN analyst John Blake writes. Cultural critic Lauren Michelle Jackson Jackson defines digital blackface as displays of emotion stereotyped as excessive, so happy, so sassy, so ghetto, so loud, etc. Blake says that digital blackface is wrong because it's a modern-day repackaging of minstrel shows, a racist form of entertainment popular in the 19th century when white actors uh, darkened their faces with burnt cork, entertained audiences by, quote, playing black characters as bumbling, happy-go-lucky simpletons. Um, what are your feelings on digital black is it is it truly not you're not supposed to share a black meme a meme with a black person in it look so i think one there are many different kinds of memes some that are just black people doing things that have nothing to do with like blackness or stereotype or any kind of black culture references per se i think the tyra banks clip that goes 
you know, that people use a lot is her dressing down one of the contestants on America's Next Top Model. I was rooting for so you. We were all rooting, rooting for, for you. That has That's nothing not to do with blackface. her being black. Yeah. She's kind of a tyrant, but that has yeah. nothing to do with her being black. So I, I wouldn't put that in the category. Look, I, I and I object to the framing of it as digital blackface, which I do think makes it seem equivalent to minstrel shows in a way that I don't think is appropriate. Yeah, they're, so, they're saying if you're white, this is, and you do this, this is in the CNN op-ed, this is one of the most insidious forms of contemporary racism. Yeah, I think I we're, mean, we've gotten society to a pretty the, acceptable place. But here, here's, here's the, the problem. Insidious People who find. frame issues like that in a way that's like, well, if you agree that this is at all a problem, it's the worst problem that ever struck America. Yeah. It undermines well, your own argument. This person is saying it's a very, Right, and I'm yeah. saying that I disagree with that because I, I really want to make that clear because okay. I do think that there are aspects of this that are wrong, but I really want to be clear. It makes the argument seem absurd if you frame it as this is like, uh, you know, equivalent to a mass genocide or whatever mm -hmm. if you think that this is not a problem. I also want to be clear that not all gifts are created equal and that some of them have nothing to do with race. They're just black people. They happen to be black. Now... I do think that sometimes people should ask themselves, if I wouldn't type out, girl, like if I wouldn't actually just write that to you, mm -hmm. like if you wouldn't say, girlfriend, da 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 da, a text message to me, but you would like tweet it out in the form of a GIF, what is that I gap? don't tweet like that. I'm not your <laughs> sassy gay friend. <laughs> or right, but like, it, you know, just ask yourself that question. Like, what is the gap between what yeah. I would be personally comfortable saying in my real life and what I'm comfortable tweeting out? And if there is a gap there and if there isn't dissonance there, I think it's worth investigating why. Mm. You know, I know of people, I have friends who do this, they'll use, like, they're not black, but they'll use black thumbs up emojis and stuff. You know, you can change That's the color good. of the... Why? Yeah, I, I... I'm just asking why. I'm not projecting anything or telling anybody. I'm just curious. The default but once is yellow. I remember being racist when there were not enough Look, that's, that's what I'm saying. The default is yellow. So someone made an affirmative choice to say, I'm going to switch this from yellow and not to it matching my actual hand color, but just a black What hand if the color. default was no longer yellow and they just gave you a random color? Oh, I don't know. What, that would, they can't randomize. <laughs> It's sure the color on everybody's phone. But if, if it were truly random and it was defaulting to something, I completely understand. But it's not defaulting to anything. People are, some people are making those kinds of choices. And I also think this article does make mistake, makes mistake in conflating. There are some gifts that are not a problem because of who is using the gift but because sometimes we have gifified things that are real tragedies. So these mm -hmm. gifts become really decontextualized and we forget like the hide your wife, hide your kids. That guy was hilarious, right? Like I had a real like, like spark and flair for drama and there's a reason why it went viral. But it's worth noting that he was being interviewed by the media because someone had tried to climb into his sister's window and rape her. And, you know, are we losing something as a society by losing track of, you know, the, the um, ain't nobody got time for that woman. Her, her, her house had burned down and she was in the middle of a tragedy when she gave that interview. Now, does that mean we can't enjoy things? Does that mean that like when people do have a flair for the dramatic and are very gifable and are really funny, that that's a problem? Not necessarily, but it, you know, it, it does give me pause sometimes when I do remember, oh yeah, like how, how, what happened to that guy? Like, is he okay? Is his sister okay? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. I, I think what the humor comes from in a lot of those cases, I'm not trying to be like, you know, annoyingly colorblind or something, but is that people without any media training or without any history of being on television 
doing exactly what you just said, really shining and really having personality and, and really being entertaining to watch. Um, it's, it's more of a class thing, really, because it's, it it's actually it's difficult to have a camera stuck in your face but and uh, to say things that, that are compelling. The fact that it's a class thing is also and, part and of the issue. Yeah. There, there are well, all not, kind of... Well, not for CNN. It's a well, blackface. Well, there, I mean, then that's a really good point. There are a lot of gifts that involve... Yeah. Working class, low income white people up to shenanigans that tend to go around and people tend to make a mockery of. You know, I, I, I do think that there, in that case as well, it's the question of are people who are not a member of this group, are people who are yeah. likely to look down on this group getting humor out of it because they're genuinely colorful and humorous? Because this is a thing that everybody, you know, they fell and everyone thinks it's funny when you fall, like just generic humor. Or is part of the humor derived from the fact that we look down on these people? And that can be hard to win. I mean, that's the case of things like. Judge Judy and all those courtroom shows. Yes. And, Jerry uh, Springer. Jerry Spring yes. Yeah, right. J Jerry, Sp Jerry Springer, I think, famously said, like, he's just nothing like that. It's a character he plays. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I don't, this is not TV yeah, for he's me. Like a, I don't. And a, a Harvard lawyer, I think, yeah. Jerry Springer. Yeah. Uh, it was TV, yeah. It's TV for, but right, but like a lot of the people, he would, but. He would defend it and say, I mean, it's TV, the kind of people who are on the show also watch the show. They love yes. watching people. Like, that's that's not classic because that people of their own class like yes. that kind of and, entertainment. And there are affluent, uh, you know, middle class or middle class black people who really enjoy some of these low income black people and yeah. these gifts who there What's is also the a negative guy? class uh, component, Tyler Perry. Yeah, I find some of that stuff funny. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I do. I, I actually, I do. I do. Okay. We're, well, I'm sure this is going to be the beginning of a much longer conversation between us, Robbie. It's hilarious. But yeah, look, I, it's, again, it's not, no one's allowed to do this. No one's going to yeah. be, you know, kicked off the internet or censored for doing this. I wouldn't, like I said, I have friends who have used, I have dated people who use the emojis of the wrong color and had thoughts and feelings about it, but it hasn't, you know, it's not a holistic issue with their entire personality. But I, I think it's worth thinking about. I think about it for myself and the way I consume content and whether or not I'm really laughing at something for a reason that I think is defensible or if it's my own kind of status that is enabling me to have distance from something and finding comedy in something that maybe is a little bit of an issue. Uh, forget, I really like the woman who she's like thinking and she's, she's <laughs> looks around and like the numbers appear. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that one. I use a lot of like cartoons and animal reactions. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're on safe ground with, with animals. Yeah, although everything's some gonna be, people, in the future, oof. everything's going to be animal themed because animals are not controversial. But some, All sports teams are going to be just like animal names. Animals can be um, controversial. People, you'll, you'll, you'll do a funny video of like uh, telling your dog they're going to get a treat and they don't give a treat and they're like, that's animal abuse. Oh God. Everything's animal God. abuse if you, you know, withhold anything from your pet for a second. If your pet like trips and falls and like Pratt falls and like hurts itself a little bit, it's like, oh my God, you're enjoying the pain of an animal. They, Someone's going to be mad at everything. <laughs> Somebody on the internet is always mad. Well, tell us your favorite uh, your favorite gifts in the comments. It's okay if there's some, <laughs> some black people represented among them. We'll just bring the humor. And tomorrow on Rising, well, Paris is burning. No, really, we'll have journalists on to discuss the turmoil facing Macron. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts in podcast form. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. See ya.